I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment the show where we dig into the underlying ideals of the various commands presented in Scripture in order to discover how we can apply these commands today. Now, I want to warn everybody that this episode will contain some very sensitive topics and will not be suitable for children. If you have young children within hearing range of this episode, you will want to pause this until you are in a private location in order to listen. So the 10 words in the book of Deuteronomy, they serve as an index for the largest part of the book. Each of the 10 ideals is then expanded in greater detail later in the book, and that's where we are at. And as we saw last week, the commands, they can be split into two columns. The first column developing the way that we are to interact with our God, starting with a simple recognition of his existence, followed by a rejection of all other images, then an admonition to properly represent him before others as his image. Next is a celebration that acts as a reminder of the qualities of our God. And finally, an appeal to show honor to the authorities that he has placed in our lives. Each command working with the previous and moving the expectation of our actions just a bit further. And the second column, like the first, then explores the underlying ideals that are contained in these first five commands. This time, rather than applying the underlying ideals to our relationship with God, these ideals are applied to our relationship with our fellow man. How do we live out the second greatest command? How do we love our neighbor? And when we examine the second set in this way, we see clearly the ideal that underlies both columns. With the first and the sixth command, we discovered quite easily that denying Hashem as God is essentially the same as murder. It is the denial of the existence of another, or the denial of existence to another. In the case of men, our bodies will cease to function and our spirits are released to whatever a destiny awaits us after judgment. In the case of God, however, when we deny him, we kill him in our minds and in the minds of others. We destroy the foundation for any kind of future allegiance or faith in ourselves or others, which, in the ultimate course of reality, results in murdering ourselves eternally and any others who might agree with us because of our words. When we turn to the second and the seventh command, we again see a correlation between the two that is super easy to spot. Do not commit idolatry, the second. Do not commit adultery, the seventh. Now, this is one of the most repeated themes in all of the Bible, especially when we get to the prophets. Committing idolatry while claiming to serve Hashem is the equivalent of cheating on your spouse. All through scripture, we read this correlation, and there are many examples of this, and we've gone to many of these places in the past. Places like Ezekiel 16 and 23 and the book of Hosea come to mind, as well as certain places in the book of Jeremiah. Another example of this comparison can be found in Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 3 through 12. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the whore. Against whom are you sporting? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, being inflamed with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cleft of the rock? Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Also to them you have poured a drink offering, You have offered a grain offering. Am I comforted in these? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed. There too you went up to slaughter a sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance. For you have departed from me, and you have gone up to them. You have made your bed wide and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed, where you saw their hand. 
and you went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes, and sent your messengers far off and lowered yourself even to Sheol. You have wearied yourselves with your many wanderings, yet you did not say, I give up. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? Have I not been silent, even from old, and have you not feared me? Let me declare your righteousness and your works, for they do not profit you. Idolatry before God is the equivalent of adultery with a spouse, and this connection reveals the seriousness of the matters of adultery. But adultery does not cease to bear meaning when it leaves the realm of physical marital relationships. In fact, as we're going to see, adultery spans a whole slew of topics. So what can we learn about adultery and its underlying ideals? Well, let's read this week's Parsha, and then let's dive down even further into this topic of adultery and what the book of Deuteronomy has to say about it. Deuteronomy 21.10-22.30 through 30. When you go out to fight against your enemies, and Hashem your Elohim shall give them into your hand, and you shall take them captive, and shall see among the captives a woman fair of form, and shall delight in her, and take her for your wife. Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails, and put aside the mantle of her captivity, and shall dwell in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a month of days. And after that you shall go in to her to be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go at her desire. But you do not sell her at all for silver. Do not treat her harshly, since you have humbled her. When a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be, on the day he makes his sons to inherit his possessions, he is not allowed to treat the son of his beloved wife as the firstborn, in the face of the son of the unloved, who is truly the firstborn. But he is to acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. When a man has a wayward and rebellious son who is not listening to the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have disciplined him, does not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gates of the city, and shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is wayward and rebellious. He is not listening to our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Thus you shall purge the evil from your midst, and let all Israel hear and fear. And when a man has committed a sin worthy of death, then he shall be put to death, and you shall hang him on a tree. Let his body not remain overnight on the tree, for you shall certainly bury him the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so you do not defile the land which Hashem your God is giving you as an inheritance. When you see your brother's ox or his sheep straying away, you shall not hide yourself from them. Return them to your brother without fail. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall be with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall return it to him. And so you do with his donkey, and so you do with his garment, and so you do with whatever your brother loses which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to hide yourself. When you see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down on the way, you shall not hide yourself from them. Help them to raise them without fail. A woman does not wear that which pertains to a man, nor does a man put on a woman's garment. For whoever does this is an abomination to Hashem your God. When you come upon a bird's nest along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with the young ones or eggs or with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. Let the mother go without fail, and take the young for yourself, so that it might be well with you, and that you shall prolong your days. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, so that you do not bring blood guilt on your house when one falls from it. Do not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of your seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Do not put on a garment of different kinds of wool and linen together. Make tassels on the four corners of your garment with which you cover yourself. When any man takes a wife, and shall go into her, and shall hate her, and shall make abusive charges against her, and bring an evil name on her, and say, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I did not find her a maiden. 
Then her father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the proof of the girl's maidenhood to the elders of the city at the gate. And the girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as a wife, and he hates her. And see, he has made abusive charges against her, saying, I did not find your daughter a maiden. And yet these are the proofs of my daughter's maidenhood. And they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. And the elders of that city shall take the man and punish him, and find him one hundred pieces of silver, and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought an evil name on a maiden of Israel, and she is to be his wife. He is not allowed to put her away all his days. But if the matter is true that the girl was not found a maiden, then they shall bring out the girl to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done wickedness in Israel, to whore in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from your midst. When a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. When a girl who is a maiden is engaged to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and shall stone them to death with stones, the girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has humbled his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if a man finds the girl who is engaged in the field, and the man takes hold of her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do no matter to the girl. The girl has no sin worthy of death, for the matter is like a man who rises against his neighbor and murders him of being. For he found her in the field, and she cried out, the engaged girl, but without anyone to save her. When a man finds a girl who is a maiden who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father fifty pieces of silver, and she is to be his wife because he has humbled her. He is not allowed to put her away all his days. A man does not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's skirt. For many people, the expectation that is held when approaching the Bible is that the Bible contains in its pages utopian ideals, that if we would just all live by them, then we would have peace and plenty and live long lives without any worries. And so when something in the Bible comes up that does not appear to be a utopian solution to a real-world problem, then the result for those who look to the Bible for utopia is that they find fault with the Bible. The fact of the matter is that while the Bible does describe a utopia that will one day be when creation is made anew, the commands and the situations that are found in the Bible are not utopian. They are real-world solutions to real-world problems that were faced by real people in the ancient Near East culture of 3,500 to 2,000 years ago a culture that is vastly different than our own and is addressed to people who operated on base assumptions that are completely different than ours. We've looked at examples of this in the past and the differences between honor and shame cultures, guilt and innocent cultures, and so on and so forth, various idioms and so on. We've examined this phenomenon when it came to the topic of slavery. The argument goes that since slavery was a brutal institution in the early years of America, and since we, as post-enlightenment humans, have decided that people should never be property, then the Bible is wrong for simply regulating and improving the institution of slavery as it existed 3,000 years ago, rather than outright banning the institution. But if this is the case, that the Bible should have utopian solutions to every problem, then divorce would never be needed. In fact, if the Bible is a guide to utopia through the management of human actions and the use of commands, then a lot of the commands that we read in the Bible fall short. So we have to discard this idea that the commands describe the way to create the ideal form of human existence. That this is not what the commands are designed to accomplish. The commands of the Torah do not describe utopia. The commands describe acting in the image of God in the midst of a broken world that is populated by broken people, including ourselves the people who will be expected to follow these commands. This lack of a utopian ideal is actually central to the message of the Bible as a whole. We cannot achieve utopia apart from God, and in the end it will take an entire recreation event to set this world back to the utopian ideal that it was intended to be. We cannot accomplish new creation by simply being good people or obeying a list of laws. And in a fallen world, some harsh laws are necessary for the good of all. 
And that brings us to the text for this week, as this Parsha contains some of the most criticized laws in the Bible. For those of you who are Torah observant, the following will feel a little bit close to home for you. How many times have you had people ask you if you still stone your children because of the command contained in this Parsha? Or the number of times that people have declared that the Bible requires a woman to marry her rapist, which is also found in this chapter. Or state that the Bible is obviously not for everyone because it prohibits the wearing of women's garments by men. And kilts. Kilts are a masculine garment in Scotland, but they look a lot like skirts, which is a feminine garment in other parts of the world. So it's not so easy as simply differentiating between male and female garments. Or the Bible obviously supports polygamy because it addresses various situations where men have multiple wives. Or do you refuse to wear mixed threads? How about that cotton polyester blend? Hmm? These last two implying that the Torah is nothing more than superstitious claptrap that could in no way foresee advancement in clothing, or alternatively it upholds institutions that are not acceptable in our modern culture or the command that the Parsha begins with. When you go to war, and you win, and you begin to take captives, and there among the captives is a woman that you desire, you must act in a certain way before you are allowed to take her as your wife. Now the modern response to this command is one of revulsion as the woman is being treated as property. Add to this that the woman does not appear to have been consulted in this arrangement of her future husband. And we, as moderners, we get a bad taste in our mouths. But we must recognize that the ancient world was very different from ours. The fact of the matter is that in the ancient world, women were seen as property. The woman rarely had any say in who she married. That was up to her parents to oversee or to arrange. The woman had little to no rights. We have seen before that it was the Bible that first introduced the concept of women's rights and slaves' rights into our world. But the fact is that the culture did not allow women to exist on their own. They could not work in any real capacity outside of the home. They needed a family to protect and to provide for them. And to some, the fact that God did not change this scenario is proof of just how backwards the Bible is. But consider it. All through history, when one country conquered another, the men of the victorious army would turn towards what? in their adrenaline-fueled victory celebration. Raping and pillaging. In a defeated city, no woman was safe from the brutality of any man that wanted her in the aftermath of the battle. A woman in a defeated city would find herself the plaything of the victors and often pregnant with their children and then abandoned, or rather forced into slave labor anyway after the repeated rapings. Being in a city that had lost in the ancient world was a terrible fate for any woman, or for any person for that matter. Instead, into this terrible situation, which was not going to go away immediately simply because the Torah said so, Hashem introduces a bit of compassion into this terrible fate. Now, when conquered, the defeated woman is not left to the mix of adrenaline and testosterone that would otherwise be the result. When Israel wins... No one is raped. No woman is impregnated and then left to fend for herself, or worse, impregnated and then made a slave. Instead, the woman may be joined to a husband that she does not love, but she is given thirty days to mourn, she is cleaned up and given a measure of honor and dignity. If a woman from a defeated city or nation is brought into this arrangement, then she is no longer a slave and cannot in the future become a slave in Israel. She is a wife, and she is to be afforded all the rights of a wife in Israel. Food, clothing, shelter. And if she is divorced at any point in the future, she is free to go where she will, at her desire. The man doesn't get to choose. The man begins the process, and she has to agree. She is not kept when she is not sold into slavery. She is an Israeli at that point, a member of the people who has been shamed. And so it is now the duty of the people of Israel to not add to or to increase her shame above what it already was. The introduction of this command to Israel changed the shape of warfare for Israel and for the world. 
Even their defeated enemies deserved compassion, not shamed heaped upon shame. And once they've been shamed, it's done. No more shame was to be added to them. With the state of the world as it was in that period of history, this command was a drastic change for the better to the state of warfare in the ancient world. And as we consider this example, we begin to see the purpose of the Torah, not to create a utopia, but to create change for the better that will, in turn, create a people who are capable of living in utopia without destroying it. And how does this connect to adultery? Well, let's get through some more before connecting these various dots into a picture that we can understand better. Moving on, the command comes that when a man has two wives, his inheritance is to go to the firstborn son, regardless of which wife the son belongs to. He is not to show favor to the son of his favored wife in this. He is to ensure that the double portion inheritance that we talked about back in Genesis goes to the firstborn. Now remember, when a man died, there were two things that were given to the oldest son. The blessing, or the authority to take over the family, and the double portion blessing, twice the amount of inheritance of the other brothers. Now, some would look at the case of Jacob and his sons, and they'll notice that he doesn't give the double portion blessing to his oldest son. In fact, he doesn't give the blessing of authority and leadership to his son. In Jacob's case, the firstborn did something to disqualify himself and to prove himself untrustworthy, as did the secondborn and the thirdborn. We need to recognize here, this was not done based on favor of the mother, this was done based on the qualities of the sons. The firstborn blessing of leadership of the tribes of Israel was passed on to Judah, the fourthborn son in this case, because all three of the first children ended up being unsuitable or just plain cruel. The double portion inheritance, however, was not given to Judah. It was passed on to Joseph through a loophole in adoption. You see, in the ancient world, when a person was adopted by another, the adopted son would be eligible to receive whatever portion of the inheritance that the father desired to give him. And so when Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh in Genesis 48, he opens up the option of allowing them to inherit from him alongside their uncles. And in Genesis 48.22, we read of Jacob declaring that Ephraim and Manasseh were to receive the double portion of his estate above their now brothers. What Jacob did was not a transgression of this command, as we might be tempted to declare. Rather, it was a legitimate practice that Jacob leveraged toward his own ends of rewarding his son, who had been taken from him because of the animosity of his brothers, and who had then saved them all from certain death, though he had no reason to do so. Remember that this law is descriptive and not prescriptive, and so it must be recognized that there are times when exceptions are to be allowed. The next command that we encounter is perhaps one of the most attacked commands in all of the Bible. The wayward and rebellious son who will not hearken to the commands of his parents. This is the command that is often trotted out as, Do you still stone your children? As if this was an imperative command to be accomplished. First off, we need to establish a few things. One, this is not a prepubescent child. The parents are to state that the child is a drunkard and a glutton. And while these are likely simply examples of bad action on behalf of the son, they also show that the son is old enough to have established a pattern of drunkenness and gluttony. And these actions in the ancient world, these are not harmless actions. In a bare subsistence agrarian society, which most of the world was until industrialization, gluttony was a danger to others in the community. Acting in this way truly did take food out of the mouths of others. And drunkenness, repeated and continual drunkenness, is always a danger to everyone around the drunk. I don't know about you, but I have never met or heard of a person who is alcoholic who is kind and funny and loving when they get drunk. The fact is that a lot of people who lose themselves to the bottle do so for a reason, and it's usually to forget. And when they succumb to the bottle, they end up a danger to those who are around them. So this command is given for the protection of the community from one who will not conform to the standards that have been set for the good of everyone. 2. This son has been disciplined for his actions. 
he has been warned, and this isn't just a single spanking. I spanked you once and told you no, and you did it again, so off to the stoning bench. That's not what's being described. This is repeated attempts to teach the child, and despite continual ongoing discipline, the son remains defiant. Three, the son is rebellious. Now, this is important because rebellion against God is a sin that God deals with repeatedly by dishing out death to those who rebel. And as he has established parents as the means by which children are to be trained up, as his trainers, as his representatives over children, a person who is continuously rebellious to their parents will then be continuously rebellious to God as well. Four, the son is brought before the judges. A case is opened, an investigation is done to determine if the charges that the parents are bringing before them are legitimate or whether the parents are being abusive. You see, the parents are the first line of defense for protecting the community from a person who would become a danger to everyone in the community, someone on the inside. Because parents know their children much better than any other. And yet, despite the fact that this command was given, there's not a single record in the history of a people who recorded nearly everything. There is no record of this ever occurring. In fact, we have examples all through scripture of terrible and rebellious sons. We never once see this command initiated against them. Take Absalom for an example. A son who actually led an armed rebellion against his father. A son who shamed his father by taking his concubines in full view of the kingdom. A son who sought out and killed his father's friends and supporters. And yet David did not enact this clause against his son. He faced him in battle when he needed to, but when his son died, he wept bitterly for him. This particular command, it's been called the one command that was so shocking that the mere fact that it was given prevented this law from ever being needed. Now, is this true? Well, frankly, who knows? The fact is, this law was given for the purpose of protecting the community at large from a wolf in sheep's clothing, or a snake in the grass, as the idioms goes, the psychopath or the sociopath that's willing to do whatever for their own gain. It is meant as a protection from the thing that looks like you, but is a great danger to you. In closing out this chapter is a command that states that when a man is killed because of sin that they have committed, they are to be hung on a tree, or perhaps impaled on a stake as an alternative, to serve as a visual example for those who might be engaging in the same sin. Before the day is over, however, the body is to be taken down. The point here being that the punishment has been accomplished, they have paid for their sin, and they have been made an example. The point has been made. There is no need to further shame the man. Keeping the body exposed would especially shame the man's family by not providing proper burial and allowing his body to decompose in the sight of everyone. Now, I don't know if you ever considered this, but a man who is dead and exposed quickly becomes food for all sorts of scavengers. They'll bloat, they'll distend, and become unrecognizable as a human being before so much as two days. Even in capital punishment that is enacted due to egregious sin, the person is not to have their dignity completely taken from them so that they become just so much rotting flesh hanging on a rope or a spike. Their body is to be respected and they are to be provided a proper burial. In chapter 21, 1 through 4, we encounter one of those out-of-place sections where the topic shifts to theft for a short time. Once again, in the midst of a series of commands that are extrapolating one specific command, we find a section that is set aside to deal with theft. Now, I have touched on this before, but we will go more in depth on this next week. Beginning in verse 5, we then encounter a slew of one-shot commands that are stacked one on top of the other. Do not wear clothing that belongs to the opposite sex. Now, this has nothing to do with clothing across cultures, the skirt and kilt example from earlier. Rather, it has to do with attempting to pass yourself off as the opposite sex. Intentional cross-dressing. Then there is a short command about not taking both a young bird or an egg and the mother bird at the same time. Take the young, leave the mother. 
When you build a house, put a parapet around the roof. Don't sow your vineyard with different kinds of seeds. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Do not put on mixed wool and linen garments and put tassels on the corners of your garments. These commands, when we see them, they initially look completely disconnected from each other. What does a mother bird and her eggs have to do with what kind of clothing I wear or what animals I use to plow a field? And the answer is adultery. I've talked about this before, but this week it comes into crystal focus. Adultery in the Bible goes far beyond what happens outside of the marriage bed. It pertains to all sorts of mixing of various kinds, and it even goes deeper than that. So to begin with, what does it mean to adulterate after all? We've gone through this before. Adulterate means to corrupt, to debase, or to make impure by the addition of a foreign or inferior substance or element. It means to make something impure or debased by mixing something else with it. In the case of marriage, it is adultery. It is the mixing of an impure element of a person outside of your covenant into the act of covenant consummation. And this addition of another person dilutes the intimacy that is to be present in a marriage. And in the same way, idolatry is the mixing of inferior gods into your act of worship of the God of the universe. It's creating an image, even if you use that image to represent Hashem. It dilutes his true image as a living, breathing God and replaces it with a dead and lifeless statue. And so this raises the question on the other commands that we have been hit with in this quick succession. How does adultery apply to them? Well, the first first is relatively easy. Uh, don't mix genders. On the surface, this looks like a do not envy command. Do not envy the gender of another, but just under the surface is the adultery. Do not adulterate your gender by attempting to appear as though you are of another gender. The bird and the egg situation? This particular command might fit better in a command dealing with murder or theft or greed, but it's found here in adultery. Why is that? Good question. I don't have a concrete answer for that, but I think it has to do with mixing death into multiple generations of a family at once. It defiles the family line or the family tree by destroying every generation of that family all at once, leaving nothing to remain. And if that is forbidden in something as simple as a bird, how much more so with a person? What about a house with a parapet on the roof? Now, first off, once again, this command reveals the need to recognize that the Torah is descriptive and not prescriptive. We do not keep this command today because we don't regularly go on to the roofs of our houses. We don't entertain people on the roofs of our houses. Most of us don't even have flat roofs as they had in the ancient Near East. Unless you do. And in that case, please, put up a railing. But how does this fit in with adultery? Well, if someone falls from your roof and dies, then there is blood guilt that is imparted on your property. And this blood guilt then adulterates your household, your community, your land, and yourself. Do not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seeds. Now, this is a bit clearer. Don't adulterate your vines by including other produce as part of the harvest. And this act results in what most translations have called a defiled yield. The ESV translates this as the crop will be forfeit. The Septuagint says that the crop will be devoted. Defiled, forfeit, or devoted? Which is it? Well, the Hebrew word used in this place is the word tikdash, uh, the root of this word being kadash, sanctified or holy. Tikdash meaning future tense or imperfect tense. It will be sanctified or holy. And frankly, the Septuagint has the best translation here. The resulting field, it's not defiled, which is the opposite of holy. Rather, the resulting produce is holy. And as such, it is to be destroyed because it is devoted to God. Now, the ESV is very close because forfeiting the field is the result of this holiness that the produce contracts because of the mixing of different things. We have to remember way back when we talked about holiness in the book of Leviticus, that holiness has to do with God's overseeing of chaos and mixtures. Now, animals of different kinds plowing. I've heard it taught before that this would cause the plow to turn as the donkey has shorter legs, can't pull as hard. And so you would end up with crooked fields. That is not true. 
Rather, the donkey, because it's smaller than the oxen, would be dragged along. And the oxen or bull or cow or whatever the larger animal is in the yoke will not only do all of the work of pulling the plow, but will also have to drag the weight of the smaller animal as well. And this, this is a danger to both animals. Adulterating a work team will leave one worker pulling all the weight while others are dragged along behind. And this situation is not comfortable for anyone. And the issue of mixed thread. Now, I've taught on this before back in Leviticus 19, and the key here is that this is not just any mixed thread. It's shot nets. It is specifically wool and linen woven together. And this mixture was reserved for those in positions of holiness, specifically the tabernacle and the priesthood. And the following verse is not a separate command, as it appears to be with its own verse number, but rather it is an exception of the command of shot nets. Do not wear a garment of wool and linen mixed, except in the case of the tassels. Regardless of what material your tassels are made of, and regardless of what material your garment is made of, the tzitzit are to be present. And this difference is spelled out clearly in the Targum Jonathan, which was written within a century or two of Yeshua. Now, while this is not mic drop proof of this point, it does demonstrate that this idea was at least understood this way by an ancient audience. Targum Jonathan in Deuteronomy 22, 11-12, it says, You shall not clothe nor warm yourself with a garment combed or netted or interwoven with woolen and linen mixed together. Nevertheless, on a robe of linen thread, you may be permitted to make fringes of woolen upon the four extremities of your vestments, with which you dress in the day. This is a topic that's been completely taken out of context in the modern church. This is one of those places that people will jump to when they find out that you choose to observe the Torah. But I can tell you from my experience in the modern world, avoiding a garment of wool and linen, that's a very easy thing to do. So let's stop for a moment and look back over these disparate commands once more, because there is something that is stated in each one that shines a light on their underlying concept being described in the concept of adultery. The first being mixed genders. It's called an abomination. The second, the mother and its egg, will so that you will prolong your days. The third, with the parapet, blood guilt will be incurred. The fourth, the product of the field will become holy, and as such it will need to be destroyed. The fifth, it will make a victim out of the stronger worker. And the sixth has to do with holiness as well. Avoiding the holiness that is apparently inherent in the mixture of wool and linen, and imparting holiness through the tassels. Each of these items speaks to the topic of holiness in the lives of the citizens of Israel in so many ways. And when we incorporate this into our discussion of adultery, we discover that the biblical definition of adultery is not so much about simply mixing things together, but rather it's about mixing the common and the profane with the holy. Far beyond the holy institution of marriage, but the holiness inherent in who you are in your sexual identity as determined by birth, biology, and God. The holiness of the genetic diversity of even the lowliest of creatures. The holiness of the life of another in something so simple as a person having an accident while on your property. The holiness of the fruit of the vineyard, which was to be used in nearly every sacrifice. The holiness connected to the victimizing of animals when we use them for labor. The holiness of a type of cloth that has been declared holy. And the holiness of the people of Israel. This chapter is not so much a discussion on mixing and chaos and confusion of various sorts. It can all be boiled down to living out holiness as granted by God, and then not introducing sub-holy items into the things that are holy. There's something truly profound in that. Holy things, such as marriage, are not to be defiled, but the topic of defiling the holy goes far beyond simply the marriage bed. It stretches into nearly every area of our lives. It truly is something that we should be on the lookout for in our daily lives. What things in our lives are holy? And what other things can we identify in our lives that might invade that holiness and dilute it? Because we are a holy people. 
and defiling Hashem's holiness with the profane, or creating holy things that have not been authorized, is to be avoided. And that brings us to the end of chapter 22. The Torah discussion of adultery in the way that we commonly think of it. Discussions of what adultery is within the bounds of sexual relationships. And to completely grasp the situation, we have to turn to something that I mentioned last week. In the ancient Hebrew culture, when a man and woman were betrothed, they were, for all intents and purposes, considered married to each other without the living together or the consummating of the relationship. They were one legally, and they were devoted to each other through a covenant from that moment on, barring some dissolution of the covenant before the consummation. And so throughout this chapter, we are going to read of the woman who is betrothed in various contexts. And so we need to understand that this is the equivalent of a married woman in this culture. Now, this first situation, it's a bit awkward to our Western sensibilities, as it features a bit of biology that we tend to not really think about, but which was highly thought about and was openly displayed in the ancient Near East. You see, it was the job of the father of a girl to ensure that the girl remained a virgin until she could be married. This means that girls in their father's house were seldom left alone for any period of time and never with the opposite sex. There would be a chaperone overseeing any interactions between the girl and any male, including the man she was betrothed to, until the night of their wedding. And this is because virgin girls were highly desired as wives for young men. The men, the families, wanted to know that the wife was devoted to them, and that they had not been intimate with any other, or any children that might arise early on were indeed their own. And the sign of this is found in the fact that a girl bleeds the first time that she has sex. Now this is due to a piece of skin that's known as the hymen that's found in the genitalia of females, which is torn the first time that a woman has intercourse. And it was this blood that was the sign of the girl's virginity that was to be present on the wedding night. And in the ancient Near East culture, the bride and the groom, after they got married, they would consummate their marriage on the dress that the woman wore for the wedding. That special dress that was reserved for this wedding day would then serve as the sign of her virginity on her wedding night. After the wedding night, this dress would be transferred to the father of the girl to keep as a sign that he had been faithful in keeping her pure. Now this dress, it became a status symbol, and such a status symbol at various times in Hebrew culture, that the dress would be prominently displayed in the father's house to demonstrate his trustworthiness and his faithfulness to others. And so if at any time after marriage the husband were to make an accusation against his wife saying that when they married she was not found to be a virgin, then the father could produce this proof to the court. Now this became such a big deal that various customs arose to protect daughters from malicious attacks in this case. Now one fact that's inescapable is that the hymen can tear in ways other than intercourse before a girl is married or has sex. In these cases, the family would bring evidence of this happening before the judges when it occurred, and the date would be marked and the girl would be declared a virgin even though she would not have the sign of her virginity on her wedding night. This fact would then be included in the marriage agreement so that any potential husband, rather the potential husband's father, would know that this was the case beforehand and he would be unable legally then to make the accusation found here at any point in the future. Also, women who had not had this event publicly recorded, as they went through their cleansing ceremony the night before their wedding, they would be inspected by a leader of the women in the community to ensure that the hymen was still in place. If it was discovered at this point that it was not, the matter would be brought to everyone's attention before the wedding could take place. The virginity of a girl on her wedding night was a thing that the entire community worked together to ensure and to protect, because it was known that the wedding bed was holy and it was not to be defiled. And if it was found that the woman or her father had lied in the contract about her virginity, well then the woman was to be put to death in front of her father's house. Not so much because she had slept with someone else, but because she had lied while entering into a holy covenant. And it is this that underlies the remainder of what's said in these upcoming commands. When adultery is discovered, then both participants are to die. 
It does not matter if one of them is not married. Both are to die because they have broken the sacred covenant. When a man and a woman who are not married to each other, but the girl is engaged, when they're found in a compromising position in a city, both are to be stoned. Again, this assumes a consensual encounter because the woman was not heard crying out in the city. Now, this would assume that other signs of being overpowered would also be looked for if the woman was unconscious or able to cry out. But if this happens in the country where there are no witnesses or no likely witnesses, only the man is to be punished because the woman was completely incapable, regardless of her intentions, of letting anyone else know. And being a victim is not a crime to be punished. And this idea that the victim deserves compassion, it is contrary to even modern Middle Eastern practices. Women who are raped in the Middle East are often killed by their own family members because of the shame and the demonstration of vulnerability that the woman then represents. It is the Bible who stepped into this situation and said, no, a woman is not to be punished or killed because she was made a victim. But it is the final command in this chapter that causes all of the heartache among some. If a man seizes an unengaged maiden and lies with her, then she is to marry him. Now, is this case that looks like the command that the woman is to marry her rapist? He found her, he seized her, and he raped her. And so now she has to marry him, and he cannot divorce her. And the reason it appears this way is because of the usage of the word seized in my translation, and in some, the word rape is actually used. The man seized the woman and lay with her. But is this what is meant by this passage, or have translators gotten in the way by using the word seized in this matter? Well, let's go back and let's compare this verse with the verse just three verses back. Now, in a lot of English translations, a same or similar word is used for both situations. The man seized the woman or took hold of the woman. And 22.25 is very clearly dealing with rape. And so this correlation of a man seizing a woman seems to apply in the English. The fact is that in the Hebrew, the action that the man takes towards the woman is vastly different. In verse 25, the word used is chazak, strength or power. The man overpowered the woman to lie with her in the case of the very obvious rape described in this chapter. Now, this is different than the word used in verse 28. The word used here is tafas, and it bears the meaning of to catch or to handle or to lay hold of, to take a hold of, and yes, it can mean to seize. It's this word that's found in the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife back in Genesis 39. Genesis 39, 12. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. In this case, we see that this is a woman who has caught herself a man, who has tafas, seized a man. And then she makes the offer of intercourse after seizing him. And in this case, Joseph refuses and he leaves very quickly. And when we compare this command with the corollary command found in Exodus 22, 16-17 that says, When a man entices a maiden who is not engaged and lies with her, he shall certainly pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he pays according to the bride price of maidens. The man entices the woman in this case. So from all of this, I think we can get a picture of just what the author was envisioning with this particular command. A man and a virgin woman find themselves alone for whatever reason, and the man catches her up into his arms or grabs her by the clothing as she's leaving, and he makes the offer of sex. The girl then agrees, and they are caught in the act through whatever means. And they are then forced to marry, but only if the father agrees to the marriage, which in most cases, he would at that point. Now, this is not speaking of overpowering a woman or forcing her into doing something that she doesn't want to do. This implies a purposeful and perhaps forceful pursuit of a woman who then finally gives in and gives consent. This is not a situation of rape, even though some translations do use the word rape. It is a man removing a woman from the protection of her father by taking her when she was not promised to anyone, which then puts her into his house and no longer in her father's house. 
And the situation then makes it harder for the father because his daughter is no longer able to be given away in marriage because of this man who has defiled her and who she, in turn, desired. This Parsha is full of perhaps the most difficult passages in the Torah, all crammed together, especially when it comes to apologetics and defense of the faith, because these commands are so easily misunderstood, and perhaps the most easily misunderstood commands in all of the Torah. But we must remember that what is found here is not utopian literature that describes a perfect world and how to act in a perfect world. The Torah is the best case scenario for how an ancient people, with all of their cultural assumptions, were to act in a broken world with the ancient values. This is why we don't read condemnations of slavery and divorce, even though both would not happen in a utopia. This is why there are commands to engage in warfare and how to go about fighting and who can fight. Because in a broken world, wars will arise. But if we expect a utopian guidebook, then discussions of warfare would center around avoidance of warfare or how to determine if warfare was moral. But that's not what we find here. We must realize and we must help others to realize that the Bible and the Torah are not meant to create or describe utopian ideals. Because utopia is impossible without the recognition of Hashem and Yeshua as God and King by everyone who draws breath. And even then there would still be strife and arguments. Rather, utopia is possible and it will come. But only after sin and death have been defeated once and for all, we cannot achieve it. Until then, we have a broken world filled with broken people, including ourselves, to deal with. And the Torah is the best-case instructions for this reality, without glossing over the terrible situations and the terrible choices that many are forced to make along the way, sometimes including ourselves. And in the midst of this terrible world, there is the matter of holiness that we must contend with, a status that we have not earned, but rather that we have been gifted through the sacrifice of our Messiah and our relationship to the Father. Holiness is a status that must be protected, and these chapters and examples of how to avoid soiling the holiness that we have been granted, they're provided to help us to avoid adultery in every form because it's holiness that unites us with the Father, and it's holiness that sets us apart from the rest of the world, and it's holiness that lies at the heart of avoiding adultery. And as we seek life, we must remember to protect that holiness, because in God's holiness, life is found, as we hold fast to the things of life and shun the things of death. So in all that you do, seek life. Dereshchai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darius Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darius Kai, as we seek life. Shalom.